The scripture reading today is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Ben. Well, again, church, um, good to be with you this morning. Um, if you are new or a guest uh, with us in person or online, uh, we, we are glad to be with you and to worship together. Uh, before we jump into our, our text this morning, I want to pray uh, for our time, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, hallowed be your name. You are holy, you are beyond our comprehension, you are transcendent greater than what we could fathom, and yet, Lord, simultaneously through the power of your Spirit, you are closer to us than we could have ever hoped for. And so, Lord, in this time, we ask that through your Spirit, you would awaken us to the beauty and the truth and the majesty and the mystery of your gospel. Lord Jesus, may we behold you and see you, surrender to you as King over all, and may you transform us through the power of your word. Lord, for those who are far from you, would you draw them near? And for those who are rooted in Christ, may you strengthen and uplift them to walk in your ways more faithfully and fruitfully. Lord, may this time be honoring to you and edifying to us. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I'm not, um, I'm not a big social media fan. Um, I'm, I'm probably more likely to say that it probably does more harm to us over the long run uh, than, than good, but there are some good things uh, that the internet does produce, and one of those is the hashtag explain a film badly. This is one of my favorite hashtags, and if you're uh, unaware of it, you're probably better for it, but um, the idea is that you take a movie and you attempt to summarize that movie by, by focusing on an insignificant detail that doesn't really do the movie justice, okay? So, so here, here's an example. So Star Wars, fairly common movie. Uh, here would be the explain the film badly. Take, uh, talking frog convinces son to kill his dad. It's like, that's, I, I guess so, kind of. That's Star Wars, maybe. Uh, Polar Express, great Christmas movie. A train conductor kidnaps children and brings them to an isolated village in the north. I get, yeah, I guess. Uh, that's kind of true. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Old man forces child into volcano. <laughs> I'm just having, you don't even need to be here. I'm just having too much fun with this. Uh, Frozen, fro great Disney movie. After the death of her parents, a young socialite causes millions in property damage. That's, that's fairly accurate. And then my, my favorite, save the best for last, 
The Hunger Games. Older sister ruins younger sister's chance to appear on television. <laughs> Oh, I'm just, I'm just having too much fun with this. So, so again, like, like these facts, all of these facts are true about these movies, but they don't do the movie justice. They don't represent the entirety, the totality of the story. And as I was thinking about this, the, the preacher in me starts thinking, okay, what's, what is the explain a film badly version of the Bible? What, and, and there are many out there. I think there are many kind of truncated, impoverished, overly simplistic versions of the Bible that we've kind of bought into as a church. And one of them, I think, is this. Jesus died to save you and take you to heaven. Which you're like, some of you are like, that's, yeah, that's, isn't that, what's, where am I right now? Isn't this church? Like, yes, that's true. The story of the Bible is no less than Jesus coming to die for us and to bring us to heaven. But, but there's so much that is missed out in that definition, in that summation of the story of the Bible. It doesn't do the grand narrative of God's plan of redeeming and restoring all things through Christ, of bringing heaven and earth back together once again. It doesn't do that story justice. This is totally true. That, that story is no less true. But there's so much more to the narrative of God and his mission in the world. It exceeds, it goes beyond just the forgiveness of our individual sins. It is about the transformation and the renewal of all things. And so as we continue on in our sermon series in the book of Philippians that we're calling Return to Joy, we see the Apostle Paul giving us a little bit of this fuller understanding of the grand narrative of God and his mission in the world and what he is doing in and through his church. Those that have come to trust and treasure, pledge their allegiance to Jesus, empowered by his spirit, living for the good of our neighbors and the glory of God in this world. And so what I want us to explore together in Philippians 2 this morning is this, that God saves us to make something with us. God saves us to make something with us. I believe that, that humanity and all of creation have fallen into sin. I believe that sin ravages and destroys both, both our, our spiritual state, it, it ravages the, the created order, it brings chaos to every part of existence and brings about shame, guilt, death, and eternal punishment. I believe that Jesus is our only hope of salvation and that through him we are saved from the power and penalty of sin. But I also believe that through Christ we are not just saved from something, we are saved for something. We are not just saved from something, we are saved for something. Jeremy Treat, in his great book, Seek First, uh, which is about understanding the, the, the theme of the kingdom of God throughout scripture, says this in kind of speaking to our truncated versions of the gospel narrative. He says this, many Christians today think of salvation as leaving earth for heaven, but the story of scripture is quite the opposite. The message of the kingdom of God is not an escape from earth to heaven, but God's reign coming down from heaven to earth. The focus of God's reign is his people, but the scope of God's reign is all of creation. When we see the work of God's salvation through Christ, and when we see it in this kind of fully orbed, robust way, it should fill us, if we are in Christ, it should fill us with a sense of hope and joy as well as anticipation and inspiration and motivation to join God in what he is doing in this world. Because God saves us to make something with us. So if you have your Bibles open, keep them open to Philippians 2, 12 through 18. 
And, and the first thing I want to bring our attention to and what Paul is doing in showing this wide story is this, that being saved makes us beloved. God saves us to make something with us, and what we see first is that being saved makes us beloved. This word beloved is one of Paul's favorite words in describing uh, the churches, the, the community of Christians that he is writing to, many of the churches that he helped plant. And this word describes both Paul's joyful affection for the Philippians as well as God's joyful affection for the Philippians. So in verse 12 when it begins, therefore, in light of all of what has been said, therefore, my beloved, he's saying something about their identity before he gets to what he is calling them to do. Their identity is rooted in being the collectively beloved children of God. This isn't just kind of a nice phrase. He's not trying to butter them up before he asks something of them. He is declaring something about their ultimate and fundamental identity, and that is the dearly beloved children of God. This is, this is in part what salvation does to us. It makes us the objects of God's joy and affection. Yes, through Christ we are forgiven. Our sins have been washed away. There is no longer penalty for those who are in Christ. But we also see that in the gospel, those who are recipients of grace are the beloved of God. We are not just freed and forgiven, that is true, but in Christ we are also chosen and cherished. And not just on our own, but with one another. That's so important here. We, we tend to view the Bible and the Christian life through very individualistic lenses. It's about me and my personal relationship with Jesus, but Paul is speaking about this reality of being beloved as a communal reality, and that we don't fully grasp what it means to be the beloved if we aren't a community together. Being God's beloved through Christ is experiencing the joy of hearing God say to us, I am glad to be with you. It is the blessing of hearing God say over us the very thing he said over his son, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Being a follower of Jesus is no less than that, is sharing in that identity that just as the father looks upon the son and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, through Christ we receive that same word of affirmation. What makes us lovely is not what we do. What makes us lovely is the fact that God loves us. We are lovely not because of what we produce or what we draw God to. We are made lovely because God, the creator of love, loves us. God saves us to make something with us. And being saved makes us beloved. If we don't grasp that, if we move too quickly beyond that, like, yeah, 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 God loves me. Let's, let's get on to the practical application here. If we miss this, we will either fall into the trap of, of kind of seeing our, our behavior and our good works as the basis upon which God loves us, and that will take us down either the, the path of, of shame because I'm not good enough, or a sense of self-righteousness and thinking that we are good enough. We must see that being saved makes us beloved. But as Paul continues, as he builds this kind of argument, if you will, the way he writes is very kind of uh, logical and, and, um, and building an argument. So he goes from we are saved and being saved makes us beloved. But we also see that being beloved makes us obedient. Being beloved makes us obedient. This is, this is so crucial to grasp 
as followers of Jesus, or if you're not a follower of Jesus, to make sure that you understand the proper ordering of how God loves, forgives, and calls his people unto himself. It is first rooted in grasping our identity as God's beloved children. This is why Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul is saying that because their salvation has made them beloved, they should live out lives of obedience. Not to become beloved, but because they already are beloved. Paul begins with their being before he moves on to their doing. And when we reverse that order, we fall into heresy. We fall into false gospels, and we fall away from the story of grace found in the person and the work of Jesus. This ordering is crucial, this proper ordering of beloved, being made and declared beloved through Christ, and then the invitation to work out our salvation, that ordering is so key. We do not obey in order to be made beloved, but rather because we've been made beloved, we respond in obedience, not to earn acceptance from God, but because we have been declared beloved, we respond in kind. Uh, Jeremy Treat, again, in his book, Seek First, says this so beautifully. He says, Christian growth is not a matter of changing into something you are not, but is about becoming who you truly are in Christ. That is absolutely right. It is not about trying to muster up some kind of self-discipline to become the beloved, but it is about embracing and seeing our identity and living that out. As a father, one of my great joys is, is seeing my children emulate my character for the most part <laughs> when, when I see them act like me there's a joy as they reflect my character I, I think I've shared this before but a, a few years ago I was playing disc golf with my my daughter Lula this is one of my favorite sports and yes disc golf is a sport uh, and so we were playing disc golf and she was she I, I was noticing how she was playing she would throw the disc and then just go Ugh. and then she'd pick it up and then throw it again and go Ugh. And I was like what is wrong with this girl and I realize that's how I play disc golf. I, I throw this thing as far as I can, and I just go, ah. Oh. And so she's like, oh, this is how you play this dumb sport, okay? You just throw this piece of plastic, this Tupperware lid around, and then just sigh. It's like, this is terrible. And so it was just, it was funny seeing her trying to emulate my character. And there's a joy that comes in seeing my children act like me, again, for the most part. So what does it mean to work out our salvation? See, when we understand that our beloved identity is what leads to our obedience, we are just living out the natural outworking of what it means to be saved. But the question still remains, what does Paul mean when he says work out your salvation? Because that sounds like he's putting the word works and salvation a little bit too close. We need to leave room for the Holy Spirit between our works and our salvation. So what does Paul mean? Well, let me first explain what, it, what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that we work for our salvation or that we work in order to receive salvation, to receive forgiveness, to receive blessedness of being the beloved. Paul has already made it clear in chapter one, the Philippians have, are the recipients of salvation. So the focus here is on what the saved life looks like, what it means to live as those who are saved. Working out one's salvation is really just the natural outworking of salvation. It is not trying to obtain something, it is rather trying to work out what is already ours. 
The, the Greek word behind our English words work out, it's one word, kater gazomai. Say that with me, kater gazomai. I just made that up. Uh, no, just kidding, that's, that's actually the Greek word. That's actually the Greek word. And, and what it literally means, it means to, to fashion with, to work fully. You see, there are different words of work in the Greek language that describe creating something or, or, or uh, making something out of scratch. But this word is about a working with, a building upon. God saves us to make something with us. And so what Paul is saying here in this text is God has worked to save you. So now make something with this new life that he has granted you by grace. Because God delights in seeing his children reflect his character. Do you see how that's a different posture than be good for goodness sake? Obey God because he said so? Now, in one sense, that's true. We absolutely, like God is the creator of all things. He is the only one in existence who literally deserves the right to say, because I said so. But yet what we see in the heart of God is a desire not just for obedience for obedience sake, but so that we might reflect the character of our Father. So think of it this way, uh, like Adam is placed in the garden, in the, in, the, in the opening chapters of the Bible. Adam is placed in the garden, he is created out of nothing. Adam's very existence is based upon grace. He did not deserve to come into existence. He did nothing to compel God to make him out of nothing. Adam's existence is entirely on grace. He's placed in a garden with a task. And that task is not given to him. It's like, hey, hey, Adam, make sure before I create you, you need to do this thing in order for me to create you. Like, it doesn't even work logically. He's created out of grace and then given a task. But Adam's life was not predicated on his ability or willingness to work with God. He was brought into existence. And then, and then on top of that, so Adam is created, and he is working with, and he's building upon the good work that God has already created. And in addition to that, God provides what is necessary for Adam to fulfill the task he's been asked to do. He's been granted knowledge. He's been given a body and hands to work and to steward the ground. So, so really, in many ways, the story of the first humans is a story of what the Christian life is meant to look like. We have received new life from God through Christ, and it is all by grace, no basis of our own merit. But we are invited to join God in his mission, to join him in working with what he has made and God has provided all that we need for this work. This is what it means to work out our salvation. And Paul, Paul goes on to say in verse 13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God provides the means necessary to accomplish what he calls us to. And so it is not out of a sense of obligation, nor is it to be seen as a transaction our obedience to God. Rather, the working out of our salvation is really just the natural outworking of being God's beloved children. And when we live out who we are, we find that God delights in it. It brings God joy. Not merely because we are doing what he says, but because we are more and more reflecting his character back to himself. The more we fully embrace our identity as his beloved, the more we reflect his character, and that brings God joy. It is about entering into a relationship and not merely checking off a to-do list, which is why theologian Lynn Kohick captures this beautifully in her commentary on Philippians. She puts it this way. Obedience is not a list to accomplish, but a relationship to deepen. 
That's a very succinct way to, I think, summarize the heart of God and what obedience and salvation mean together. Obedience is not a perfunctory transactional activity that we do out of a sense of obligation. It is a means of living more fully into our identity as God's beloved. And in so doing, we come to know him more intimately. Being saved makes us beloved. Being beloved makes us obedient. But as Paul continues on, we see that being obedient makes us influential. Being obedient makes us influential. Notice, notice how these things are building upon each other. Paul begins with their identity. First, before you do anything else, know that you are beloved. Your identity is first. And then that leads to obedience, and that obedience leads to being a person of influence. And notice how Paul kind of deconstructs the kind of common Christian narratives in our day of be good for goodness sake or have faith so that you can just go to heaven. It's so much more than that. Yes, we are called to be good. We are absolutely called to be good as followers of Jesus, but not as a means to our salvation. Yes, faith secures eternal life now and forever, but not at the expense of ignoring the good work God invites us to join him in now. And if you've been around Christ's community, you might even see, it took me a little while to even realize this. Halfway through as I was studying this, someone actually pointed out to me, this is in many ways the mission statement of our church. We desire to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. It begins with our identity. Being saved makes us beloved. We are a caring family. Before we talk about our mission and what we're called to, we first declare who we are. We are a family. That's who we are. Being beloved makes us obedient, so we are called to be disciples who multiply disciples. This is what we do, not out of a sense of obligation. It is an outworking of who we are, and we seek to influence our community and world for Jesus Christ. This is, this is why we exist. This is really what Paul, I think, is pointing out to us. We begin with our identity that leads to our obedience, that naturally flows from our identity, and that produces an influence in our world. And this is, this is where Paul builds toward in verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights. Now, that may sound almost anticlimactic. Just think about it. Like, like Paul has just been talking about the beauties and the excellencies of salvation, that the God of highest heaven, the creator of all things, has secured for us forgiveness and redemption, has called us his beloved now and forever, and Paul builds to this first instruction of don't complain. That seems, I mean, like that's, like, that's the best you've got. Like, I've come to redeem you and ransom you, to empower you with my spirit, the very spirit that resides in Jesus, the same spirit that brought creation to existence, empowers you to not complain. And it's just like, that's it? But when you think about this, grumbling and disputing speaks to the fundamental problem, I think, of the human condition. Our tendency to complain about insignificant things that leads to division and disputes, it, it, it unleashes a turmoil, a heartache, and destruction in our lives and the lives of those around us. The reason why Paul builds up to this instruction of don't grumble or fall into disputes is because he knows what is at stake for the church in particular. Last week I talked about the importance of unity for the church and being a witness to the world. 
And I want to build on that a little bit here. One of the ways we as a church will be a people of influence in the world is through our unity. And one of the ways we maintain that unity is to put away our grumblings and disputes about secondary things. And I want to speak to just one example of this. Masks. I said that first service, somebody thought I said math. <laughs> it's like, is that controversial? Yes, it is. No, but, but, but I, I want to speak to this. I, I know this is, we're tired of talking about this. But as many of you know, today was the first day we offered a mask optional service at our 8 o'clock service indoors. 9.30 is still mask required, 11 o'clock still outside. But here's, here's the thing, and we think that's a helpful intermediate step as we kind of move to whatever return to normal looks like. But, but here's what I want to say to this. Family, don't let this divide us. I, it is so, I believe this is fertile soil for our enemy to sow seeds of division among us, to allow us to kind of go down this path and this thought of kind of looking upon those people who wear masks and those who don't as being culturally other than us. The temptation for us to say something like, I attend the mask required service because I love people, unlike those, you know, those people at the eight o'clock service, or, or for the people at the 8 o'clock service, say, I attend the, the mask optional service because I am not given to fear like those 9.30 people. Or the people who are outside, like, I'm better than all of them uh, because we're outside. We're doing all the cautious things. Like, I, I, I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but my prayer is that we would not, not only n never think those things, but never say those things. To not allow these things to cause dispute and division among us. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have opinions or convictions. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we should not let these things become means by which we categorize and criticize one another. We are God's beloved children, saved into a life of good works with him, to shine his lights in our world. And our influence is seen through our unity together, and we will be inhibited from being who we are and doing what we are called to do if we fall prey to grumbling and disputes around secondary things but also if we fall into grumbling and foolish disputes with those outside the church. Yes, there, there is truth, and there are lies that we are called to speak to, but, but we must be very careful of the tone and posture in which we engage in conversation with those who are outside the church. Paul urges the Philippians to shine his lights in the world, and here's the thing, we don't shine our light by bringing attention to ourselves and how great we are, or in showing how broken and dark other people are and how better we are than them. Rather, we shine to draw people to the light of Christ, the word of life that Paul references. Or in other words, as Madeline L'Engle put it, the, the author of A Wrinkle in Time, she says this, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That's what it means to shine as lights in the world. Again, I'm not saying that we just put our differences aside and just kind of sing kumbaya and hold hands. But what it means to shine as lights in this world means that we have a posture of, yes, being properly distinct. Followers of Jesus should live their lives in such a way that is different from the culture around us that doesn't love Jesus and love the things that he loves. But also what it means to shine as lights is that we live our lives with a faithful and fruitful presence in the world for the good of our world. 
Not to show them how wrong they are, but to invite them into the fullness and the abundant joyful life that Christ offers. And according to Paul, the way we do that is by holding fast to the word of life, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our beloved identity that leads to our joyful obedience and brings about our fruitful influence comes when we collectively center our attention and our fundamental identity upon Jesus. When our primary identity is rooted in Christ together, not just individually, but together, we find ourselves together working out our salvation by shining as lights in the world for the good of our neighbors and the glory of God. Being saved makes us beloved. It's who we are. We are, we are a caring family. Being beloved makes us obedient. We are disciples who multiply disciples. And being obedient makes us influential. But lastly, being all of this makes us and God joyful. Being all of this makes us and God joyful. Paul ends this section of his letter, or of this chapter, uh, by showing his beloved Philippians that when the church lives into her beloved identity, when she lives out her grateful obedience and produces fruitful influence, joy is found. Look at verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Even through pains and costs, hardship, difficulty, challenges of remaining faithful to Jesus, joy is found when we are united together. Church, this is what our mission is about. When we live out and live into our identity as a beloved family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ, we find joy together because we are on mission together. It is not about my own personal relationship with Jesus. It is about being a part of a new community. But here's the thing. The joy that comes from us being united together on mission cannot compare to the joy that God has when he sees his people being faithful and fruitful to the work they have been called to together. Remember what Paul says in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. God delights in seeing his people living out their mission together. God loves us, saves us, and makes something with us because it brings him joy. The heart of God fills up with joy when people far from him are brought near through the blood of Christ. And the face of God lights up with joy when he sees his children, his beloved children, shining as lights in the world. Not because they're finally doing what he told them to do, but because they are reflecting his character. And so, so friend, hear me. If you are far from God, if you are lost in this world and burdened by sin and shame and guilt, know that God delights to save you. That it brings him joy to see those who are far from him brought near. He longs to rescue you and invite you into his kingdom and call you his beloved. And if you are in Christ... Know that God delights in seeing you living out your identity as his beloved. That he takes great joy in Christ's community being unified together, living into our identity as his beloved children. His joy is amplified when his children reflect the character of their father. Amen? God saves us to make something with us. So as we prepare to go from being the church gathered 
to being the church scattered um, in our homes, in our vocations and schools. I invite you to stand uh, for our benediction, our good word for the road. And no better place to, to share than from what we heard this morning from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Hear these words of blessing. May they form us and shape us. And I invite you to extend your hand to receive this blessing. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week. Peace to you all.